0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You're listening to episode 63, a conversation with Lauren Gazal. Lauren was living in New York City, working as a family nurse practitioner, and had just started a PhD program when she was diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma. She went through six months of treatment, including chemotherapy and fertility preservation, and is now cancer-free. Her diagnosis has monumentally changed her path going forward. She shifted her research focus and has successfully defended her dissertation. Her focus now and going forward is looking at the survivorship needs of young adults with cancer with a focus on financial toxicity, a topic that is not often talked about when we talk about cancer, but such an important one. This episode took us in so many directions. I love the conversation that we had. One of the things that we really spoke at length about is mental health and cancer. We talked about mental health, both during and after treatment, how to get the support that you need, the struggles that may face, cultural differences that may arise and so much more. We also talked about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected cancer care and what we foresee in the future. And with that, let's get right to it. I am so excited to welcome Lauren Gazal to the Interlude podcast today. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast, and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Thank you so much, Lauren, for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, what your story is. Yes. Great. Um, So I am clinically, I am a family
1: nurse practitioner um, and I am originally from the great state, small state of Rhode Island. I originally didn't go into nursing. Um, I was an undergrad in economics and kind of thought I wanted to be a lawyer for the longest time. Um, and then found nursing, um, transitioned to that area and was working as a clinical research nurse, got very interested in pursuing my PhD. So went on to my program. Um, and then um, in my first year of the program, actually, I was diagnosed with stage two Hodgkin lymphoma, um, And that dramatically shifted my whole research area and my whole focus. Um, and I am a newly minted PhD, just having defended my dissertation and will graduate um, a week from today. So that's, that's a little bit about me.
0: <laughs> Congratulations. That is very exciting. And I want to hear about your thesis. But before we go into that and your diagnosis, so how does one you know, become a PhD, right? What was the process like? You make it sound very simple, like, all right, <laughs> just want to get my PhD, but I can imagine that it's much harder than that.
1: That's, I'm glad you brought that up because yes, I have, when I even do slides for presentations, never is anything just a straight line, right? We always have those ups and downs mm-hmm. and those detours. And for me, that was, you know, one of them was, was a cancer diagnosis early on. Uh, but to you know, for, to receive your PhD um, in nursing, uh, you enroll in a PhD program after receiving your bachelor's or master's in in nursing. And for me, I received first my bachelor's in economics, um, then did an accelerated family nurse practitioner program, worked as a primary care uh, family nurse practitioner, and um, and then continued on to my, applied to PhD programs and then uh, enrolled into the PhD program. And it was uh, around graduation takes roughly from four to seven years. I graduated in four years. um, And every PhD program is a little different in terms of their qualifications and what their qualifying exam is or candidacy exam is. Um, but for me, I did that early on in the first year and then um, took coursework the first two years and then um, defended my dissertation proposal, collected collected primary data, um, analyzed it, and then and then defended this this study.
0: <laughs>
1: what study was that? Yeah, so I, as I said, my personal, um, history as a cancer survivor early on in my PhD greatly informed my, my research going forward. And I came out of active treatment asking so many questions and (laughs) around the young adult cancer survivorship experience about what happens now and how do we best support young adults after they're diagnosed with cancer throughout their entire, entire survivorship. Um, and I looked at the current literature, and I saw that there were many gaps in that area. Um, and so I was like, okay, I know personally I want to do this. You know, is the is, can I can I do this from a research perspective? And I could. Um, and so my dissertation was on um, multi-level factors in influencing quality of life in young adult cancer survivors. And so what I did was I. Um, interviewed young adult cancer survivors who were diagnosed with either leukemia or lymphoma. So I stuck to hematologic cancers um, and then had them complete surveys. And then doing a mixed method study, I analyzed both of those sets of data separately, and then I brought them together and integrated them. And I was really, really interested in looking at this relationship between one's work-related goals. So one, what, what participants described they like to do in their work, how cancer impacted their, their career, their future career, and then how that ultimately impacted their quality of life. And what and the relationship still isn't clear, it's so multifaceted and it's, it's um, uh, really hard to measure with just one survey or one study, um, but there were really interesting findings that
0: will be published very soon, so I'm excited about that. Uh, but that was, that was my dissertation (laughs) in a nutshell. (laughs) That's a great question. So let me just make sure I'm getting it. So it's basically how did a diagnosis of cancer impact your career and, and the direction that you took in your career after that diagnosis?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That's a fascinating question. I love that. And
1: I, it was definitely um, prompted by, you know, I, 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 talked to all the nurses throughout my treatment, throughout when I was getting treatment. And I was, I was a nurse. I wasn't an oncology nurse, but I was a, um, first a research nurse and then, um, in primary care. And I was like, huh, like if you're an oncology nurse, what kind of shaped your experiences with that? And talking to others, I realized, you know, they were personally affected by cancer, whether they had, they were as a diagnosis, pediatric cancer patient or family members. And it was just a question to me that was like, if you're if you're diagnosed during this pivotal moment in your life during young adulthood, right? And you're making these decisions about your career. You're trying to become financially independent and establishing your self-identity. And when you have a huge thing happens, just cancer, that makes you question all these things. What happens after? And what if you can't, you know, financially afford to change careers or to explore that? How will that affect your self-identity? How will that affect your quality of life? And so it's, multi-level as we call it, right? There's so many things that, that that will affect that relationship, but it was, you know, it was really fascinating to be doing this study and to t- talk directly to other young adult survivors and to collect data. Um, but yeah, I, that's, that's that's what kind of, you know, flagged that question for me early
0: on. <laughs> oh, I think that it's, it's hard to do that kind of research because it is not black and white, right? There's a lot of gray and there's a lot of it's, there's no concrete information. So I think, you know, being able to have the interviews and to really just talk to people is important. And we see that, I mean, everyone in oncology, I think anyone who works in it has often a very personal connection with it because it is a hard field to go into. And very often, I think anything that we do in life is shaped by our personal experiences. So um, that, that's a fascinating, really way to look at it. So what's next for you then? So you graduate next week and what comes after that?
1: Yes, I graduate and I've accepted a um, NCI funded T32 postdoc. Um, and I'm very excited to be working, to be the first nurse in that postdoc and uh, to be working with these like rock star researchers that are health economists, um, social workers, you know, health services researchers to, to look at, you know, to look at young adult cancer survivors, but also more broadly the concept of financial toxicity and how that evolves over once um, one survivorship period. Uh, because I I do definitely believe when you're near an active treatment, your whole financial decision making is very different than um, in longer term survivorship. So I'm very excited for next steps and um, seeing what will unfold and it was great to be doing this interview with you kind of in this in between too <laughs> yeah,
0: I think you know it's so wonderful to see that there's research and there's funded and there's nationally funded research on survivorship because for so long there wasn't and so there's all this research on drugs and treatments but you know patients tell me this and I'm sure you may have experienced it as well when you're done with active treatment there's this like well so 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 what what happens? now, right? Um, what do we do now? And some people times feel like, all right, they were coming every week and now they're being told "All right, i see you in three months. And there's all this kind of this black hole um, that, ha- and I always tell people, I think that sometimes the year after active treatment is harder, that healing period can be a lot harder because you're trying to navigate your new life, your new body, your, your new everything. And the world expects you to be kind of back to where you were pre-cancer, um, and financial toxicity is, is huge. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to share your personal story of, you know, your diagnosis and and what those things were like for you going through it? And, and also, you know, what was it like being diagnosed with cancer, you know, while you're working and in clinical medicine?
1: Of course. Yeah. I, I, um, I think I've given myself the opportunity to laugh back at the story now. Like, I think I'm okay with with, <laughs> <laughs> with finding it kind of ironically funny, but, um, I, so I was working as, as a family nurse practitioner and I, um, had another provider with me that was like shadowing me with, for the day. And, um, they were asking about the lymph lymph nodes and lymphatic system. And we were showing like a brief, um, lymph node exam and so checking for superclavicular nodes and that's like the one thing right that sticks out from my nursing education is like superclavicular nodes are always something that screams like we need to follow this up these are not Mm -hmm. they're not super normal right so I was practicing you know the exam on on the um, student that was shadowing me and then she did mine and I remember feeling something like months earlier like a right supraclavicular nodes and then being like okay I'm in my first semester of the PhD program I'm stressed I'm run down all this stuff and just put it in the back of my head and then she felt the lymph node too and I felt it again and I ended up having a primary care appointment in a few weeks anyway but that was the first time where I kind of had these feelers go up that like okay something like, we should get this checked out and I should bring it up to my primary care doctor when I see them. Um, And so I did. And immediately, you know, as you've probably heard many times, it was just, the ball started rolling from there that um, I went to my primary care appointment. They immediately sent me to the radiologist for an ultrasound. Um, From there was sent to to an ENT, um, had a first biopsy done. It came back inconclusive, had another one, um, then got that call that was like, okay, we need to send you to an oncologist now. Um, and it was, I, I personally had to check in with myself so many times about like, can I continue to work clinically while I was doing this workup period? Because it was extremely distressing and extremely surprising to me. Um, I had just recently moved to New York, uh, four months before my diagnosis. And I was still trying to establish my community in a new place too. And so even friends that I had just met to say, Hey, like actually, you know, this, this place told me I should bring somebody with me to this appointment. You want to (laughs) come if my like siblings or if family members couldn't make it. And uh, yeah, so I, um, I received a preliminary diagnosis of like we saw lymphoma cells on the phone, um, which was, it was, it was really distressing for me. I think figuring out what I was supposed to do that uh, the weekend after, um, and then, you know, met my oncologist fell in love with my oncologist, have this great relationship with her, um, and really, you know, trusted my gut along the entire way of like, okay, first getting a second opinion and following up. And, um, there was a lot, a lot of, personal responsibility I put on myself as somebody in healthcare who understood, you know, who understood the diagnosis, who understood things that I had to, I had to do and follow up with, and even just like getting physical copies of, uh, of imaging, right, and bringing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt this additional responsibility that I had to be on top of my game with, with managing that. And uh, that was something I really like, I just put too much stress on myself. Um, throughout the whole process, and not not giving giving myself the freedom to let go in those places, and um, and I think you know, it, nobody ever wants to do their their experience over. But looking back, I was like, wow, I was just I was so hard on myself throughout that experience, and um, it's a big it's a big learning experience too. But so I was diagnosed and um, went through had had was fortunate to go through fertility preservation um by receiving some financial support with that too which dramatically affected my decision to to undergo that and then um went through chemotherapy um finished chemotherapy as you said you know you get that scan after and you're holding your breath and and you're like all I want is to get that clear scan and then you get that clear scan and then there like you said, there's so much, there's, you finally breathe out, but then you're like, oh, I am going to now just process everything that has happened to me for the last six months or a year. (laughs) Um, and so that's when I, you know, I, I experienced a lot of anxiety around that period. Um, I talked to my therapist actually a lot more during that, that Mm post-active period, Um, and, and like you said, it was a lot of when my actual healing started was after, after treatment ended.
0: And, you know, I think that's a really important point, that pressure that you put on yourself to almost perform to this level because you were in healthcare. Um, and I, I think, you know, I always, I see, I mean, when, you know, when I see people that are in healthcare, I always say to them, I'm going to speak to you as if you're not in healthcare, because, you know, there's, there's lay people language. And I think if we assume, you know, a lot of times when you're the patient and you're going through it, everything that you remember learning kind of goes out the window. Right. And that's why it's so important to have someone with you for all these major appointments. And we suffered with this from COVID a little bit because people weren't able to bring someone. And it's, it's hard when you're going through such a major crisis, you don't always retain everything.
1: That, that's so true, and it's. I, I have I thought about that so much with friends of mine or people that have connected with me um, after their diagnosis recently of just like little tidbits that I could share or you know asking about certain things and I I always recommend it like you know asking the provider first but if you are in the appointment alone or if you have somebody there that just wants to listen to the mm-hmm. provider right. Um, record the session, if, if, you know, telling the oncologist, telling the nurse ahead of time, um, because then you, you're, you're receiving information for the first time. And it's like, I'm trying to understand this and under, and like, understand what a leukocyte is and like all of these things. And then it's like, I am also trying to comprehend and understand that I'm, I'm, you know, have been diagnosed with this and I have to do this and I have to make these decisions. And so I, I, have thought about that so much recently of like how the experience may, you know, may be for those diagnosed with cancer during COVID or having to go through those initial conversations alone for for obviously the, the mental health support of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also just like the understanding and if that's influenced like any decision-making or just the ability to ask questions because I felt like a lot of, sometimes my questions came more from, you know, if my brother was there, my mom was there, someone just being like, I don't understand this. You need to explain this again. And, and that was, that was funny for me at times. Like it was like, it made it kept things light. And even in your practice, if you've seen things like that too, with patients being like, can I record this more? Right. Or.
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, it's an interesting point. Like we, you know, we still, we always sell, even with COVID, we allowed people to come to bring someone with them for their first consult, but a lot of times, and now we're really kind of liberalizing it. And, you know, if there's any important conversations, but I think what's missing, you know, that was lost during COVID is you don't get to know the patient's family members. So you don't really know what their life is like, because Mm -hmm. you get that one person, you get that snapshot. So, I've had patients who brought different friends with them to the visits. I, you know, they brought different family members or they brought the same person, but you get to know, you get a picture of this person, not just from what they're telling you. Right. And I think that really guides that I think guides the treatment recommendations. In some cases, you really see, okay, what is their social support? You know, if someone's let's say having a hard time walking around at home because they have neuropathy or they're falling at home, well, they may not tell you that with their partner or their family or member, whoever will. Um, but I also think you, you know, one of the reasons I love oncology is because you really do get to know the whole family and you get to kind of know these people well. And I, I think we're, we've, we've lost some of that, but I'm hopeful that it will come that's, back.
1: That's a really great point that you bring up too. And like so timely with my research that you know to really be able to provide that holistic, comprehensive care that impacts one's quality of life, right? Looking at like work-related measures or looking if if somebody wants to sustain their work during, during treatment, right? Um, And you gave the example of of someone who's falling, but if, if I I feel like many times my family, yes, stepped up and was like, can she work? Can she still work? She wants to do this or like, she wants to still go to her classes. Can she do this? And, and I, I, those are such great questions of like, how did that, how did that influence, um, you know, one's overall quality of life throughout their their treatment and, and survivorship during this period? Um, because those questions, like you said, sometimes it was like, it's not the patient driving them, it's the support that's there.
0: <laughs> exactly, and I think the other part of it too, I mean, we don't think about this, but you know, c- cancer is so isolating already, right? No matter how much support you have, you're going through this alone. And I think that's why a lot of the social, you know, networks that are, that exist now are wonderful. But again, those, you know, if you think about it, I mean, I'm, it's biased toward younger people that are just more on social media, right? So, um, but for the most part, you know, it's, it's very isolating and it's very lonely. And so now you add COVID on top of that. And it's really and what I have seen, and this is very anecdotal, but it is really hard to have Cancer during COVID, and now there's this weird dynamic, and I think people are everyone struggling with this about like re-entering the world, right? Can I do this? And so it was very easy during COVID. Well, no, you really shouldn't go to work if you're getting chemotherapy, and and no, you shouldn't travel, and no, you shouldn't go to this party. And I don't care how you know what's happening. And now it's like, well, well, everyone's vaccinated. I don't know, maybe. And so there's this, there's so much anxiety. I think that's emerging for a lot of people because you're in this very weird in-between place where COVID's not over and maybe you're done with chemo. Maybe you're not. What do you do? And I I don't have a right answer to that, but I've been getting so many questions and I just, it's, it's, it's hard.
1: It adds this other layer, like you said, of anxiety, of uncertainty. It's like you already have so much uncertainty as, Mm -hmm. as a cancer, as a cancer patient and, and as a cancer survivor and, and, then to, like you said, add on that other complex layer of like, I, I don't know. I like, I, I I don't know if I can remain working, you know, from remote or can I ask for these accommodations or can I do this? Like you were saying, it's, um, nobody has these answers. Right. And it's like, and I think what's, what's really great from, from the patient perspective is having the relationship with my oncologist to feel comfortable to ask that, like Mm -hmm. to even, you know, and, and I'm sure you see this with patients like, I mean, I, I use the messenger function on my portal a lot just to say, can I do this? Or before I got my COVID vaccine, I just, you know, I, I reached out to my oncologist again. I was like, just checking in before I do this, just want to (laughs) let you know, like, do you have any other recommendations or, um, and, and even working throughout COVID as a, as a cancer survivor in remission, there was so much uncertainty where one week I was like, yes, I can work. And then they got back to me that, you know, actually it would be great if you weren't working right now. We, there's a lot of uncertainty and we don't know what its, its effect is on someone like you. That's a year and a half out of, of active treatment. Um, so I, I, I go back and forth whether like, I wasn't as, I guess, anxious throughout COVID because of my cancer experience mm-hmm. where I was like, okay, you know, it, whether this is attributed to resilience that I've built up in this post-traumatic growth that we like know a lot of in mm-hmm. the survivorship literature, um, you know, or is it like, it, is it that, or is it just like my, evolvement as an adult now. And like, just knowing that, okay, this is, you know, we, I, I have, I have these answers to this, but there's also so much other uncertainty and I can't get super anxious about that. Um, I can do what I can do now. Um, but really stay focused on, on the present and that's gosh, I still have so much trouble with that, but that's so hard to do is not jump right. Mm -hmm. Leaps and bounds ahead.
0: I think that's a really important point because you went through your life changing thing, right? So for many people, COVID was their life changing or life altering event, and um, I love everything that Glennon Doyle writes. And I read her book (laughs) like during right at the heart of the pandemic. But she just came out with a new podcast and her. aired yesterday in her episode she's talking about anxiety and one of the things she says was that you know during COVID it was actually like you could be anxious all you want but it was very easy to follow the rules right the rules were stay home social distance wear a mask that's it so you could be anxious about the news and but you knew what to do and I think now people don't know what to do but I think with with cancer It was the same thing you've gone through this and you've lived that uncertainty before and you've lived that, well, let's live in the moment. And I know I'm going through chemo and this is what I have to do right now. And so when this second life altering event came, you kind of were equipped to deal with that.
1: I, I didn't quite like realize that similarity of like post or like the overlap, I would say between, um, acute treatment and like the COVID period and then this post mm-hmm. uh, acute treatment period and then like post COVID of like the, the what next or okay. Like you said, it's like you had your, you had what you had to do, like you had what you had to do and you were going to treatment. You had your appointments, you were checking off. You were told, yes, you could do this. You can't do this, wear whatever, wear a mask. <laughs> and then with COVID, like you were saying, you had, you, you had things that you were you know, advised to do. And that's, that's so, that's so true. I think that's like such a fascinating thing to talk more about with, with throughout cancer survivorship, but like, well, what can we learn? What can Mm -hmm. we learn from the cancer survivorship literature? Are we going to see, you know, a a lot of similarities with, with these positive effects of, of, um, illness uncertainty with like post-traumatic growth and resilience? Like we see we're going to see that in COVID in years to come. Um, and I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see what will happen, but I'm also very glad that you brought up Glenn and Doyle because <laughs> I'm a huge fan of hers as well. And I like, I actually have a bracelet that I made that has, that says Brutiful on it because I loved, I love that saying. Mm-hmm. I was like, and that's, and that's like how I captured, I guess, like my cancer experience was like, it, it was this, this mix of like, life is brutal and life is beautiful. And we see, in it, it's such like a simple thing, but it's like, brutal. Yeah. And I say, I share that with so many people now and they're like, Oh yeah, I, I can totally see that. But, um, I, I, also read her book and
0: um excited to be listening to her podcast post dissertation and graduation. <laughs> it, was, it was really good. And I actually just I, don't know, I went to get coffee yesterday and I'm just sitting in my car and I'm like, all right, I have to go get my coffee. And I'm like, no, I want to finish it. But it was really, I mean, I I think her voice and her words are so impactful. But the pot, you know, it's all about I think the she just it's she makes it simple, but she makes it okay. And I think one of the things that I, I one of my goals for this podcast is to normalize talking about mental health and to talk about, you know, there's so much that happens, you know, after a cancer diagnosis. And there's so many things that people are impacted by both during and after that do not get talked about in the oncologist's office, because look, you only have 15, 20 minutes. It's just the reality of the world we live in. Um, And there's so much stuff on, you know, how the diagnosis impacts your personal life, your work life, your relationships. And we don't talk about that enough. And and one of the things that she said in this episode yesterday was that we have to get rid of the stigma, right? So there was someone who, you know, they do this Q&A and someone had called in and talking about, well, what, you know, my family wants me to get off medication for my anxiety, but I feel like I need it. And I think that we have to normalize being on medications if you need it, if it helps you, right? And I, I talk to my patients about this all the time. You're on chemotherapy. If you have nausea, you'll take your nausea meds. If you've got reflux, you know, you'll take your reflux meds. But the second we say, maybe you need something for your mood or your mental health, right? And no, 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 I can't do that. But your brain is the most important part of your body. Mm-hmm. And we just don't take care of it the way that we should.
1: I, I have so many, so many thoughts about this. Yes. And I so I'm Middle Eastern. Um, My dad is and I'm I'm a proud daughter of um, dad who immigrated from Beirut, Lebanon and family from Syria and Turkey. And um, it was so challenging to um, disclose this to family members because you know, many still thought about this as that illness with that being italicized and that the cancer as like cutting, like the, the cancer sounds right. It's um, being afraid to even say those words because of so much of that negative stigma associated with it. And, and I've, I had so many actually great conversations that came from this with my, with my dad that was like, why is this? And he's like, because, you know, in Lebanon, when anybody was diagnosed, it was a, it was like a terminal thing and, and, and they don't know the advance advancements that are made. And like, um, and, and there was so much that I struggled with, with just having to show my family, I'm still, I'm still the same person and I still have these same goals and I'm still pursuing my PhD and, and I'm still going to be living in New York. <laughs> like, And, and it was and it was definitely tied to this, this that negative stigma of mental health. And, and I, um, you know, we talk about medication. I, so I, I had a really great kind of pan, cancer peer that as soon as I was diagnosed, I reached out to her. Um, and she was like the one person I knew that had has experienced something similar in her life. And I was like, what do I do? Like, wh- tell me what I need to do right now. And she's like, well, first we we're going to get you a therapist. <laughs> and I started therapy like that following week. And I still, I still talk to my therapist here. And like, I, I can't imagine having navigated so many transitions without her. That's the first thing. But then also that like, it was again, like never brought up. Um, unless I brought it up in in uh, conversations with my oncologist and my healthcare team, um, and then when treatment ended, and I um, you know had just really really high levels of distress, and I spoke to my therapist a lot. I spoke with my oncologist, um, saw a psycho um, psycho oncologist for a bit, and that was also like really hard scheduling wise because there's like months waiting just mm-hmm. to get with. Rid- yeah get in to see them but i started on um an anti anxiety medication a few few months after my treatment ended and it was and you know i talked i was visiting my family right within like the 48 hours and during that period where like you want somebody to be monitoring you when you start a new medication like this and so i let my family know uh, like i was starting this medication it was because i was very anxious and I was very shocked with the response of like, but you're done with treatment and you're healthy now and you're better. And like, and just what you said, they, like, I had to kind of put it into these terms of like, okay, you have diabetes, right? So you're taking metformin because of this. And like, this is something fundamentally like with my brain that is just not, it's not there right now. And I'm doing these other things and therapy is wonderful, but it wasn't enough for me at that time. And, and fortunately, like I, you know, I, I got the help that I needed, but it was, it was really hard to explain to family members with this cultural barrier of like, I'm, I'm not doing treatment right now. Yes. But I'm on this medication. And also it's okay to be on this medication. It's okay to see a therapist and, and I actually, a, a really good friend of mine, one of my best friends texted me today and was like, the reason why I saw a therapist after I had a baby was because you were so open about your experience. And I was like, you have no idea how much that means to me to say that. But it, but it, it I feel like allowing myself to talk about it with others and talk about it freely with others um, and say, I, I continue to talk to someone. And, and what's that analogy? It's like you, um, uh, it's like, you don't, you don't stop medication just because you're not having symptoms or you, right. And so that's, that's how I kind of equate it when I'm talking to others of like, even, even if I don't have something dramatically important to talk about with a therapist for the week, you know, it's so important that you check in with them regularly. And, um, I, I wish whatever I can do in my future research and future career to, um, dispel the stigma or reduce it in some way, I I will try. (laughs) Um, I think that I'm really optimistic for this generation of young adults and kind of the generation that we're seeing now where people are talking more openly about mental health. People um, are just more aware of what's going on in the world. And, and yes, social media is, is a part of that too. Um, But it's, it, it was just more, more challenging than I wanted it to be of um, disclosing, I guess, to like family of like, hey, this is what I'm doing. And this is okay. Um, because I'm, I'm, I'm getting the help that I need, and I will be okay. And so,
0: yeah, I, I feel like that could be a whole, a separate episode. Right. <laughs> so, like. No, thank, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think there's all, all the cultural, barriers are huge and i you know as you were si- saying it i think one of the things that really matters also is the language that we use so instead of saying and you you know you said i have anxiety right it doesn't define you it's something that you have that's i have diabetes i have cancer i have anxiety you're not saying i'm anxious right because it it's not the sum of who you are it's maybe something that you're dealing with and it's the same thing of i'm instead of saying i'm depressed I have depression, right? And I think that normalizes some of of the medications and normalizes some of these conditions, but also you you can be anxious and happy and sad and depressed all at the same time. You can have all of these emotions. And so I think a lot of times we see people that are maybe you know doing great and happy and laughing and say, well, how could they be, how could they have depression or how can they have anxiety? And there's so many layers to each and every one of us. Um, And I think in in cancer survivors, that's much more magnified. Definitely. So much so I wanted to say to my parents right after
1: treatment ended, like, I'm 100% great. And I'm so happy. And let's just go back to how things were. Because, I mean, that's terrifying for any parent, no matter how the age of your child, right? It's terrifying. And so I can't say that I understand their experience wholly, but I also didn't want them to take away from what I was experiencing and, um, you know, affect my, my processing through everything. And so I I completely agree. Language has such a huge, huge thing to do with, (laughs) with how one is, you know, perceiving, um, mental health. Um, and, and I, I really do. I really am optimistic. I really am for um, kind of the future of oncology research and survivorship research in general with addressing, you know, there's so much distress happening throughout all periods of survivorship, but really focusing more on that, that post-acute treatment period where, where people are just figuring out, okay, I'm trying to figure out my life now. And what does that mean? And what support do I have? And what financial resources do I have? And what does this look like to be a cancer survivor now in this current age? Um, And so it's, it's, um, it's a lot of work that you put in to, you know, figuring out these things too. Um, But there are a, a lot of great resources out there. And, I really do think cancer centers do a great job with connecting you to with mental health support and, mm-hmm. and other resources.
0: And and I, I, I will say that, you know, for anyone who's listening to this, if you are a survivor, and maybe you haven't been connected to those resources, they are out there and reach out and ask, you know, and I think that we we all have to communicate. Sometimes the oncologist doesn't know what you're experiencing if you haven't told them. Um, and so I think it's okay to say, you know, I'm, I'm really feeling this or I'm having a hard time with this. You know, what are the resources available? Because at the end of the day, you know, your healthcare team, there's, it's a team, right? So there's not one person for everything. And I, I think that there's so many resources out there um, for anything that people are struggling, whether it be mental health, whether it be you know, financial work-related, whatever it is, there are so many great organizations. Um, last week I had on the podcast, um, Dr. Jamie Nachman, who is the chief medical officer of the Chick Mission, which I hadn't even heard of until we ta- like, you know, we connected. And they're an organization designed to help women afford fertility preservation for cancer. I mean, there's just so many of these hidden resources out there. And so I urge people just to speak up about what you need and be vocal about what you need. Yeah. That's, that's
1: such a funny, like funny example that you bring that up too. Cause I, I was financially supported through Live Strong fertility grant. Um, and then I just recently found out like paying for storage, right. is like another rent in New York (laughs) (laughs) City, but there were other, um, there were other like groups that, you know, had this storage for like a fraction of that cost that if I just like looked at this one web, one page in this specific website, um, I would have been able to see that like a year ago. And, and it's, it's tough too, because I, I struggle even with identifying um, a lot of interventions at the individual level for my research. Like I don't want to put anything else on the patient. You don't want to put anything on another cancer survivor right after they've been diagnosed or during their treatment. And and so I think like, okay, you know, should our, our system should be built better where they have all these resources afforded to you, right? Like, right. We should, we should have it so that you don't even have to ask, but there's so many, so many different things to, to take note of, and that it is, it's, it's hard to be able to identify all of those needs from the beginning. And so I echo you with saying, if anybody's listening and, and, you know, wants more resources on mental health support, or even, you know, um, nutrition or or dietary needs throughout treatment too, to, to reach out to their, uh, their oncologist or cancer center. um, That for me, I remember at the end of treatment being like, why didn't I ever meet with a
0: nutritionist? Like, (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think there's different needs. There's different needs for nutrition during chemo for after chemo. And one of the things we started doing, we imply created the survivorship assessment survey that we have all of our follow-ups fill out. And it's great because it, it kind of hits all the major points, you know, both physical and, and mental. And there's things that I picked up on that, that I would have never picked up if I didn't ask in a survey. That's because Again, it may be very hard for someone to say, I am struggling with this. Whereas if you just quietly check it off on a questionnaire, that gives me permission to bring it up, but I'm bringing it up rather than someone having to, you know, and again, a lot of times people struggle with, I mean, intimacy after chemotherapy or after cancer relationships, if you're young and single and dating, I mean, there's just pregnancy I mean, there's so many hard topics. They are taboo for some people and that's okay. Um, but I think the point being is that you have to find a team of people that take care of you, that you're not afraid to bring those up with. You know, if you feel like those questions, those topics are taboo, maybe you're not, not say in the right place, but (laughs) you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I I know you've had a lot of other experts on fertility preservation and, and, um, those areas on your, on your podcast. But I, one thing I will say about that, that I, you know, I, I share this a lot with other, other survivors. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was approached with, okay, you, you have the set amount of time before your treatment starts. Do you want to, do you want to pursue fertility preservation? And after, you know, it got over the hurdle of like, how much was this going to cost me right now financially cost me, you know, and then the, how much was this going to like emotionally cost me. And then just the time of, of (laughs) going to this place every day. Or, um, I had, my oncologist said, you don't have to decide now if you want to have kids. I just want you to think about, do you want the option in a few years? And, and that shift of like, oh, like it actually helped me like, of like, I don't, I don't have to decide this now. I have too many other things I'm thinking about, but like that option, uh, question, changing that to like, do you want the option, or do you want the, to be consider this? Um, was was so
0: powerful for me, and it really impacted like my response to it too. I, I I really like that language, and I like the way of thinking about it because you're right. There's so many decisions you have to make, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's like I just can't deal with this right now, or I want to get started with my treatment. I don't want to postpone it, but again, you you know, I tell people this is a decision again, so that you have the option, but don't make a hasty decision because you're nervous or stressed and then close off that part of your life. If that's something that you may even maybe want to do, mm-hmm. but it's hard. It's it's such a hard, it's just, there's so much happening in that initial month of diagnosis that I don't, can be hard to breathe. I feel like. Oh Yeah. And sometimes
1: I would just tell friends, can you just make the decisions for me? <laughs> like, just tell me what I need to do. And then, and, and that's what I even struggle with now with having friends reach out. I just had a dear friend um, recently reach out to me who's going through treatment for breast cancer. And she had reached out to me the night that she was diagnosed too. And similar that I reached out to my friend. And so you will have those experiences as a survivor of being that support person for somebody else recently diagnosed. And I think I put so much, like, I, and I'm sorry if I get emotional about this, because it's like, I, I played in my head so much of what I wanted to say in that initial moment, because you know, it's going to be a long, a long experience. And you know, there's so much that you can't take away from that person that they have to experience for themselves. And so when we, when we saw each other a few weeks ago, I was like, remember that night? And I was like, kind of a little speechless for some things. And I was like, this is what I wanted to say there. And what I felt like I couldn't. And she goes, Oh, I completely get that. Cause now it's like, I'm doing the same thing for others where Mm -hmm. it's, it's, and it's not like being secretive or holding out. It's, it's the, I, I empathize like you understand so much and you empathize. And then it's like, you're still, you're feeling for them. You're feeling for your experience. You want to take it away from them. Like you don't want them to have to go through it. And then you want to be able to tell them exactly what they need to tell. But then you also know there's no really, there's no perfect answer and there's no perfect thing. And because, you know, in a perfect world, you would take that experience
0: from them. Right. And you wouldn't have them going through this. Exactly. And I think there's two things to say with that. One is that it's okay if it's not perfect. And you just, I think what the person needs in that moment is to have someone sit with them who's gone through it and just feel it with them. Um, But sometimes, you know, I'll flip it around. Sometimes people have said to me who are maybe still fresh in their diagnosis, um, you know, a friend of mine was diagnosed and I'm not ready to be that person for them right now. And I think that it is okay. And um, I tell people, just tell them that, tell them what you told me, because if you can't be that person for them, then they deserve to know that. And it's okay that if you, you may still be healing, you may still be going through it. It may be too raw for you at that time. Um, And just to say, you know, I'm here, but I'm not, I I can't be the support that you need right now. Um, And so that's okay too. I think the key is just being open and honest and transparent.
1: Oh yeah. And, and as a, as a, from a, from a patient's perspective, hearing that I'm like, oh yeah, of course. Like, thank you for telling me that. Mm-hmm. Like you, that is like the the perfect response to that. I, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I was, I was just thinking when you were saying that I'm like, how would I have responded if a friend of mine said that? And I was like, oh my gosh, of course. Cause oh, you're not God.
0: thinking, you're not thinking it. Cause you're busy wrapped up in your diagnosis. You're like, well, let me call whoever's gone through it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I get, I mean, as an oncologist, I will get calls from anyone that I know who's ever, you know, whose family members diagnosed with cancer. And I always welcome them, but a lot of times I can't help because that's not what I do. Right. I see breast and GI cancers. If you call me about a colon cancer patient, I'm useless. Um, but what I say to people is, look, I'm not the right person, but I'm here for you. And I can help connect you to mm-hmm. someone that you need. Cause I think what a lot of people you know, need at, at, at an original diagnose, an initial diagnosis is for someone to say, all right, we've got this. This is what's going to happen. This is the plan. And a lot of times people are struggling, they're, they're drowning almost. And I think what we can all do as having some experience in that space is to say, can I help you? And if I can't help you, who can I connect you to? Right? So if you feel like, all right, I can't be the support that you need, but I know so-and-so and they're really Good to talk to right now, or you know, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's really great. Yeah.
0: So, before we wrap up, is there anything Lauren that we didn't talk about that you want to mention? Oh,
1: actually, there was one thing that I want to say was that, and I did a really poor job of this throughout treatment, but was accepting help. Yeah. And you know, so many people offered, can I do this for you? Can I do this for you? Can I do this for you? And I didn't want to put any additional burden on anybody. Um, but there is so much growth, I think that comes with accepting the help. And I think it benefits everybody, every party involved, right. Because yeah. people want to, they want it, they want to do something, they want to help. And, um, like you said, sometimes it's not even doing something like physical for you, but being like, can I call somebody for you? Or can I tell this, can I like let mm-hmm. somebody know? Um, and so saying yes to more of those offers, I think, um, and, Um, yeah, taking people up on their offers to help, uh, is, was some of the feedback I guess, like I got was like, why didn't you do this? And I was like, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to put more stress on you. And they're like, I wanted to do this. So it ends up causing more hassle in the
0: end. (laughs) Do Do you think that, you know, a lot of people say, well, let me know what I can do to help. And I always tell people come with a specific offer of, I am going to do this. Does that? But is that helpful? Like if someone says, I'm bringing you dinner, that's it. Be there at seven o'clock.
1: Super helpful. And I have like shared this with like my mom and so many people, so many friends where it's like, she's wanted to help out friends or family members of hers. And I'm like, offer, say, you're going to go to the grocery, I'm going to the grocery store. What do you want me to pick up for you? I'll drop it off rather than, do you want me to pick up anything for you? Or like, um, like reach out when you need me. I can tell you when people said that to me, I never reached out to them (laughs) because it was, it was putting, it was putting the burden on me. Mm-hmm. It was putting it on and and on the way to say like one I hope like when I reach out to you like gosh I hope you're not busy. I hope I'm not interrupting you. I hope you still want to do this like all of these things versus like okay, I know this person is just saying I can do this for you and it's like great. So, I completely agree with that. That's such a great thing to bring up of like yes, offer um offer a tangible thing, offer, you know, an option that they can they can opt out of. They don't have to opt
0: in. That's and I will mean. say, and I like that the opt in and opt out, and that is what's been lost during COVID because I don't see family members and I don't see friends, and I can't tell them that you know, because they're usually like the representative for everybody else for like oh, the, network, the yeah. social network, you know, so I can't tell them that. Um, so and it's when you tell the patient that well, they're like, all right, but they're still not going to go tell their friends, hey, help me, <laughs> Eleanor. Well, we have to figure out
1: how to like communicate more than before outside of outside of COVID. Cause that's such an interesting
0: thing. And such an important thing, right? Like yeah. before when I would meet people's friends, I'd be like, I would flat out look at them and say, this is what you need to do. You need to offer to help. It has to be tangible and tell everybody. Yeah. And now I don't do that. So I, I think that there's, I think that the social like cancer repercussions of COVID are, are much deeper than anyone maybe, and probably for other chronic illnesses, it's just not what I do. But I I think that there's so much deeper than anyone, you know, we talk about delayed diagnoses and advanced cancers, but the social and mental aspects of it, no one's talking about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Oh, and I wonder if it's, you know, I I hate to even like say this too, but is it that people are already like at their bandwidth? Like sometimes, and I I think about like, gosh, like, yeah, I'm so lucky. I I wasn't going through treatment during COVID for many reasons, but also I'm like, I, w- I don't think I would have received as much support because people were dealing with a lot of things, like a lot, just fearing for their lives too and their health and, and having their lives disrupted. And so it's almost like, you know, exactly like what you said. It's your experience in when when you're going through cancer treatment or being diagnosed during the time of COVID, you're experiencing a life interruption alongside everybody else. And it's like, okay, people have maybe some shared understanding then of a disruption, but then also people's ability to help and offer
0: support is less. You know, I've never thought about that, but it's very true. I mean, people were stressed and pushed beyond breaking points during COVID and still. So it's when you add one more thing, it, it may have been really impossible. Yeah. But we'll end. We'll end on an uplifting note. <laughs> no, no, I don't, don't want to end on that. On that. <laughs> the numbers are coming down. We're gonna get people back into exam rooms and offices, and we're gonna go in the right direction. Lauren, where can listeners reach out to you if they want to connect with you in any way?
1: Yeah, so they can find me on Twitter um, at lghazal g h a z a l, and they can also email me. Um, Do you want me to say my email or you'll put it on the
0: link? Um, Say your email. Say your email.
1: So it's L as in Lauren, V as in Victor, G as in Gazelle, 220 at nyu.edu. I'm open to any fun collaborations in a postdoc and future career. Um, I also love hearing from other young adult survivors. And um, yeah, I'm. Open talking. I've spoken to quite a few other nurses, too, who are thinking of oncology nursing now. And um, I I thank you for having this avenue to be able to talk and really to talk more freely, like you said, about mental health and a lot of other things that um, kind of fall under the radar in, um, in oncology.
0: Thank you. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Lauren. One of the reasons that I love doing this podcast is because the conversations just take on a mind and a life of their own and go in so many incredible, incredible directions. And this definitely was one of them. I think that the conversation that we had on mental health is a really, really important one. And the talk about cultural differences and the words and the language that we use when we talk about cancer and mental health, as well as everything else that we talked about in this podcast was really it's just a fantastic, fantastic discussion. And I hope that you learned from this. Um, Lauren is a wonderful person. I am so excited to see what she will do in the future um, with, her, with her new PhD and her upcoming fellowship. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, I would be honored if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. You can find me at Dr. Doplinsky on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you all again so much for listening. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will see all of you next week.